0: Welcome to Conversations with the Co-Op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-Op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and today we have Laura Shin on this installment with Conversations with a Co-Op. Laura is the host of the Unchained podcast and author of the newly published book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Laura, thanks for being here with us today. How's it going?
1: Oh my God, I'm having the best week ever. (laughs) I know,
0: you've been pretty busy. I've seen you on, on Twitter. You're doing a lot of interviews. How's that going for you? Yeah. Pretty hectic?
1: Oh my gosh, it's been hectic, but like so wonderful. I went to London after my book was published the day after. And the day after I revealed who I believe the DAO attacker is, And I went to a conference at Chainalysis on Thursday, and so many people came up and said such lovely things. And I then went to a conference in Oxford the next day. I saw some crypto people in the UK, including some sources who helped me with a book. And I gave them signed copies. And I was also able to actually see a number of personal friends who obviously I hadn't seen for years because of the pandemic. And then one other thing that was like really special was I had done study abroad in Oxford in college. And it is just a place that means so much to me. And so to go back there, right after a major life milestone to this place that just feels like so close to my heart. Like I literally I went, walked around to all my old haunts. And I was actually like crying a lot. <laughs> because I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain just like yeah, just revisiting a place that just was so formative for you. And then like going back at a time when you have had this major life accomplishment, like it was very moving. And then last night here in New York, we had my first official book reading and signing and it was totally sold out. And they were actually turning people away at the door because I think some people signed up with the Ethereum meetup and didn't realize they had to give their names to the strand or, or like pay the strand or buy a book or whatever. and so. I mean, it was kind of like, honestly, a lot of authors, you know, have a hard time kind of drumming up an audience for their book signings. And so the fact that this was sold out was just it was like, wonderful. And a lot of people came up and said that they had been listening to the podcast for years. And I mean, it just overall was the whole thing was like, I just felt like it was glowing. (laughs) So it's been, it's been really great.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, definitely a whirlwind I can imagine. And yeah, I'm one of those people who's been listening to your podcast for quite a long time as well. Back when it was unconfirmed, I think is what it, or you had two at one point, something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah. So like, how did,
0: how did all of this get started? Just, you know, just your background and just how did you get into crypto in general?
1: So I was covering personal finance for Forbes as a freelancer for a while. And and I'd actually also been covering it for uh, you know other outlets before then. And I was frankly getting a little antsy just because when you cover personal finance, it's not a beat like crypto that changes all the time. It's a beat that probably hasn't changed very much for decades. And so I just was getting to the point where I really wanted to do something else because you know, I, I just, I, I need to have that challenge and I need to be learning. Um, if something becomes too easy for me, I literally have zero desire to do it. So my editors said, well, you know, we have this idea to do a Forbes FinTech 50 list. How about you head up the list with another reporter? And so she and I divided the list into subcategories and I took the subcategory of digital currencies and I just became completely obsessed. I wrote a big feature about it for the magazine and hilariously, people are going to laugh because it was so wrong. It was about how Wall Street and traditional financial services companies would use blockchain technology to make their offerings faster and more efficient. (laughs) Um, But anyway, all all I have to say is, you know, I got in in the the 2015 era and that's what people were saying. So, you know, if my sources are saying that and they know more about this world than I do, supposedly, then that's what I was reporting. (laughs) um yeah so i just truly fell down the rabbit hole and like pretty much really didn't want to cover anything else but that
0: yeah that's that's awesome and that was kind of the idea way back then was the, the permission blockchains right and, or enterprise blockchains and that just i don't know that just didn't really pan out i guess do you, do you have any idea no. why Why do you think that didn't pan out
1: i mean because i mean there's so many reasons i think people well a couple things so just really didn't understand kind of the the benefit of crypto assets and, you know, what, what benefits they provide and like how beneficial they are. And so there was this sort of like dismissive attitude toward them. But the thing is that these legacy institutions, they just have a lot of inertia that keeps them from really disrupting themselves and really innovating. And they don't really have an incentive because, you know, to use blockchain technology, they would need to Do it in this cooperative fashion, right? A blockchain is about numerous actors coming together and cooperating. And when you have these financial institutions that are used to competing with each other, I think it's just obviously a really difficult shift. And frankly, they already have thousands of workers who do things a totally different way. So, you know, I just feel like the incentives weren't there. And then also, what we have seen time and again in these decentralized communities is that things move very fast in a decentralized space. And I mean, well, they move fast and slow, which is kind of a funny irony. You know, obviously it's sort of like how China can be sort of top down and move very quickly. But then, you know, like the US is just going to be better even even if it takes a little bit longer because it's messier. But, you know, what we have seen with the crypto space is that when things take off, they can take off very, very fast we saw this you know with the ico craze we've seen it with defi we saw it with nfts we're seeing it with daos like it's just it just happens over and over again and so yeah i just feel like frankly ha- so having intermediaries in a system that frankly was designed to remove intermediaries is just an oxymoron and that's why these financial institutions trying to adopt blockchain technology just didn't work
0: yeah that's an interesting way to put it and that makes a lot a lot of sense when you put it that way like putting those intermediaries there where the whole idea was to remove those in the first place yeah that that actually helps make sense of that to me so yeah we'll get in the book here in a little bit and i i just i really love the journalistic approach that you took like very in-depth journalistic research and part of that is the fact that in the fact that you don't own any crypto or at least that has been the case historically you've mentioned it on your podcast a few times and you know every once in a while i'll see people on twitter i think marty bent said this a couple months ago that you know it's like how can you report on this space when you don't even hold or, or use the assets so is that true that you don't any, own any crypto right now and How would you respond to that criticism?
1: So my business owns a little bit of Ether and Solana at the moment. My company bought the Ether to secure my ENS domain names, my .eth domain names. For anybody who knows anything about the crypto space, I have a ton of imposters that try to scam people out of money all the time on like every single platform. So I felt the need to own those domain names. And just keep anybody from scamming people with them. And then I had Ether Left Over. And so obviously I bought those like I forget a year or or two ago or whatever. But I had Ether Left Over. And because of my book, I have I am going to be doing NFTs. And so I will use the leftover ETH to create those NFTs. And then when I was thinking about doing this NFT. I did not know whether I would want to do it on a cheaper chain as well, so I just bought a a few Solana at the time, thinking that I might want to have that to create the NFTs there. So basically, so that's it. But none of these are for personal investment. When I was at Forbes, Forbes allows you to hold what you, sorry, to cover what you own as long as you disclose it. So at that time, I did own some Bitcoin and Ether. Um, but then when I quit, like, it's so much more important to me to be able to write for any publication that I would want to write for. And so I just, you know, decided, okay, so I'm not going to own anything now because I want to be able to write for any publication about crypto. That's so much more fun to me. Like I would, I would so much rather do that than like, just get rich off of crypto doing nothing just would not be fulfilling to me in any way. And I've had people tweet at me about that. Like they don't, and they some people say to me, like, have fun staying poor. I was like, wow, are you do you really not understand? Like, I am having the time of my life covering crypto, you cannot pay me enough money to not do it. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So I just I don't know, I just find it like, funny. I mean, granted, of course, I, I wish that a number of these publications I'd like to write for would say, Oh, you know, you can, Uh, Cover what you own. You would just need to disclose, you know, sort of like that Forbes policy. But you know, if that's not going to happen, then fine. I just I'm not going to own it because I would rather write for them.
0: Yeah, it's um. Oh yeah, go uh ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Oh no, I was going to answer the other part of your question. So you can.
0: I was going to say, yeah. It just kind of seems ironic in the sense that owning crypto is supposed to give people this personal freedom, but you're finding it, you know, with the publications that you write for that not owning crypto gives you more freedom to do what you want.
1: Exactly. I mean, obviously, it's just me and my situation. But yeah, pretty much. And then for the other part about, you know, I can't write about it if I haven't used it. I mean, you've read my book. What's your what's your opinion of that? Can I write about it if I haven't used it? I mean, I if I don't use it on a regular basis. I
0: listen to your podcasts all the time. And I've read the book. And yeah, I mean, I obviously feel like those criticisms uh, don't make any sense to me, but I'm just interested to see how you, uh, your response to those.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously I could definitely do work where I would use it. And if I, if that were the case, I would just use my company money to do it and then not be trying to like personally profit or anything it would be like just for the experiment, you know, use whatever like a hundred dollars or whatever it might be, or even obviously for some DeFi things I would need to use more than that to make it work out just financially because of the fees. But but then I I would just do it to write about it and not to be like oh I'm going to try to make ten thousand bucks doing this or whatever. I'm just it's just going to be me doing it as an experiment to write about it, and then if there's any profit I you know, might donate it or like I, cause I've noticed some other publications that have done experiments. They do things like that. Like, um, I can't remember which one this was, but, but anyway, one of the journalistic publications that did something with NFTs did a donation to, uh, one of the big journalism groups, you know, that promotes freedom of speech and stuff like that. So that's a good idea you know I I don't know I haven't really thought about it I, I frankly I definitely actually do want to do more experiments with crypto and write about it or make videos about it or whatever but I've been so busy with the book and just doing my shows and just everything going on so even though that is in the back of my head as something that I'd like to do at some point. I just haven't had time yet. So you know, stay tuned. Maybe maybe at some point you guys will find out about my experiments using crypto, and it might be highly entertaining for you all to realize like, oh, Laura's very knowledgeable about this, but we must use crypto because she has not really been using it very much. Like she's you know m- at a much uh, lower level than than most of you. So you might find that entertaining. <laughs>
0: I don't know, Laura, after reading the book, I feel like maybe you have a lot more, I guess, just like street smarts in the crypto space than maybe some other people. I think you you might be less likely to get rug pulled than most others. So yeah, let's, let's talk about the book. Is this your first book? And why did you decide to write this book? And was the kind of the anthology of Ethereum always intended to be the main idea for this book or did it start off as something else and it, it, you just kind of said, no, th- this is the real story here?
1: Yes. So I have not written a book like this before. I've written a couple ebooks that were just published with Forbes. But this is my first real book that is coming out in stores, you know, uh, with a traditional publisher and everything like that. And actually, my idea originally, and, and that is what the book became, but the scope of what I was thinking was very different. So I started working on the proposal for the book in early 2018, and my idea was to explain how the 2017 ICO craze happened. And I actually had a much bigger scope in mind that included how Coinbase was the major on-ramp to the crypto world from fiat, because just getting money into the system, I think, was also part of it. And so I actually did like a ton of interviews with Coinbase people. And I even wrote a few chapters on Coinbase. <laughs> but ultimately, I realized I had to just like ditch all that stuff because I I had too much material. Like the book is 400 pages. And this is after I cut the Coinbase part out. <laughs> so I just at a certain point, I was like, okay, the Ethereum part is really where it's at. And it's more important. And it's a, a, a like a story. So ultimately, I ended up just focusing on that half of it. And so the book ends up being kind of like a three quarters of a, of a history, three quarters of it is a history of Ethereum. And then at the end, when the ICO craze is really going, then it kind of branches out into into some other areas. But yeah, it's funny, because I really wanted to describe how the ICO craze happened. But in order to do that, you have to give so much backstory that a huge percentage of the book is all the things that happened before the ICO craze happens at the very end.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I noticed while reading the book is that, you know, you really don't pull any punches on this. And there's, there's not a lot of people who really come away looking great in this book, you know, from like a Charles Hoskinson standpoint, Gavin Wood, consensus, Ming, I guess, Vitalik does kind of come out somewhat unscathed. Although he,
1: yeah he's like the only one,
0: yeah, he, he might be <laughs> the only literally
1: one. the only one, Taylor I mean, Monahan, I think looks pretty good too,
0: oh yeah i I'm a big fan of hers, and just hearing her parts in the book w- was really exciting, but, um, <laughs> so, I don't know, are, are were you ever worried about burning any bridges when you're just kind of doing this tell all about these very key prominent figures in the crypto space?
1: You know, it was something I just felt that I didn't i that I couldn't let myself worry about because. I was trying to kind of write a document for the ages, a historical document, something that people 100 years from now would use to understand what Ethereum was and how crypto got started. And I just felt like I can't write this in a way where I'm trying to protect my own access or I have any concerns about my own ability to do whatever. Because even if people stop talking to me, It's not like I can't cover what it is that they're doing. I may not be able to have them on my show, but I can have other people comment on them. I I can still write about them, you know, as you know from the book. And and just remind me, did you finish until the very end, like including the epilogue and everything?
0: Okay, so I have to admit, I'm on chapter 12. I didn't get to finish the whole thing. Uh, Okay, okay.
1: So you'll find out at the very end, kind of like who didn't talk to me. But there are some people who, you know, they're all over the book, but they, they didn't talk to me. And, you know, I obviously was still able to tell the story. Um, and obviously with the podcast, it's night. People like it when I can have a guest on that they want to hear from. But like I said, I my my primary goal really was to just write the best book I could write. And if I ever let my own concerns about getting access to people for the podcast interfere with that, I would have not been able to write as good a book as I believe that I did or that I hope that I did. And so, and, and frankly, also that that goal would have interfered with what I said earlier about how I was trying to write a historical document. And I really wanted people a hundred years from now to understand what it was that happened at this time. And so just finding out the truth and presenting as accurate a picture as I could, was that was my number one goal at all times. And I did not ever falter in that. I just always, always pursued that.
0: Yeah, I think you did a great job of doing that. And just still on the subject of of Vitalik, like he's such an interesting, like specimen. And he was so young when he founded Ethereum. And it kind of feels like the social network, in a sense, but for crypto, and I just wondering, like, like what are your personal opinions about like Vitalik's leadership in the beginning, and kind of what he's grown into today? Do you see him as like a crypto version of Mark Zuckerberg, or just what are your thoughts on that?
1: So, Vitalik was nineteen when he he came up with the idea for Ethereum, and at that time, the Bitcoin price had just shot past $1,000 for the first time. And a lot of people were feeling very flush. And I think they suddenly were aware, or really, actually, I mean, so this was before they knew that the price was going to deflate, right? They felt like, oh, we've made it. Like now we're ultra wealthy, like whatever. You know, these are people who probably owned Bitcoin when it was in the single digits, or low two digits, or whatever. And that meant that when he had this idea that seemed quite promising, he attracted a lot of opportunists and people who probably had pretty self-serving intentions uh, right from the start. And he was not the kind of person that was going to be well-equipped to deal with that. You know, he talked to me about how when he was young he struggled with loneliness there was a very 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 long stretch of his childhood where he really did not have any friends i mean he told me that in junior high he was shocked to find out that his schoolmates were going over to each other's houses on um weekends and after school like he he i, I mean it was a total shock to him he didn't know that they were doing that which think about it i mean he made it to junior high and somehow didn't realize that kids have play dates with each other and you know and get together and hang out i mean he just when when he found that out he not only was shocked but he didn't even know how to to enter that world and so at 19 i mean granted uh, he had a slightly different experience in high school he finally kind of found people who were more similar to him but that environment you know i visited that school i time like saw those classes, I talked with the teacher there, the principal, and it really felt like a preschool that was like for old, for older kids. <laughs> like I think I called it, I said it had like a preschool sense of, you know, I, I forget like comfort and safety or whatever. And then a graduate school seminars, a sense of like intellectual rigor. I, I can't remember the exact words I use, but it just had this feeling of you know, I, I can't remember how many students there were per class, but I think it was like fifty students across all four grades or something. So you know, it was like like less than twenty, I guess, per grade, or I forget the exact numbers. Uh, if anybody's read it more recently, maybe you can tell me. But, you know th- again, that very cocoon like atmosphere, it was not something that prepared him for the real world. And, you know, between so he did start college, but he dropped out after or not dropped out, he, I forget what this is called, but something at his school, they like allow you to kind of do work in the real world and alternate that with schooling. And he did that and used the time to travel the world and visit these Bitcoin communities. And again, it's, you know, he's kind of more in this one-on-one relationship with people and he just, they were just like Bitcoin nerds geeking out on Bitcoin and, you know, having fun with crypto and so once he had this idea for Ethereum, the kinds of people who were attracting were just different kinds of people that he really had never dealt with before. And so, you know, his quote-unquote leadership skills at the time were pretty much zero. You know, a few different times, people did mention to me that his conception really was to do to not do a pre-mine and to just launch Ethereum like Satoshi. And he got talked out of it by... Uh, one of the other co-founders, who many people, you know, would would definitely say that that person was very self-interested, and um, you know that definitely I think uh, has affected the trajectory of Ethereum. Obviously, we have a lot of people who definitely have a lot more ether than they probably would deserve in any kind of rational system. <laughs> And, you know, it took kind of a while for Vitalik to be able to assert himself. And even once that started happening years later, that only really started happening in a very roundabout way, which people will read about. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but let's just say, I think sometimes when Vitalik started asserting himself and finally making decisions, it wasn't always necessarily that it was him even doing it. Like, I think he, again, was influenced by other people, but it was just people that he trusted better. So you'll read about that. And there are people who take issue with how he had structured, structured his life by that point, you know, so whether or not it really is better is probably up to question. And, and I should also mention that my book ends in early 2018 in January, 2018. So Um, you know, I don't know about right now, obviously now it's four years later, he might be quite different, but I do know some of the people who were talking to me when I was doing this reporting in like 2019, 2020, you know, I think some of them, some of their comments also did apply to the period beyond 2018.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I know who you're alluding to uh, when you're talking about uh, who may have been... Because <laughs> you're
1: probably reading that part right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and on that on that same subject, you know, in this book, there is just so much in the sense of, just like you said, power-hungry founders, lies, greed, something like authoritarianism, manipulation, you know, both like emotional manipulation as well as market manipulation, which Ironically, you know, all of this is just contrary to, like, the initial idealism in which crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum is trying to break away from. And I just want to know about, like, your revelations that you had about that just interesting contrast between, like, this almost toxic nature of human power struggles versus the objective code that those same humans were writing. and. I don't know. Like, does this research that you've done uh, change your views on just human nature in general, if at all?
1: Yeah, I I guess it sort of does paint a slightly darker picture of things. (laughs) Because obviously, most of the people that I deal with in my everyday life are, I would say, of kind of higher integrity. And so, yeah, kind of learning about a lot of this stuff was pretty eye opening. You know, one thing I would say was that. I frankly, I mean, I, I obviously was surprised by so many things. Like, when it, let's just put it this way. The book proposal and the final book do not resemble each other because I did not know even like 10% of what is in the book when I went to write it. And one of the probably big things that I took away from the book that surprised me was the influence of whales. And like, they're they're just there behind the scenes. They have a lot of power. And it is kind of disheartening given the way that blockchain technology is described in terms of its potential to democratize things. And I don't I like at the same time that I was shocked by all this and a little bit disappointed. I also wouldn't say necessarily that it makes me think that it's impossible to use this technology to make things better. I just think things are so early, like, you know, we need to still develop the technology further and hopefully make it even better and reduce the influence of, of whales, et cetera, because I personally think it's, it's possible, but you know, in the early days when things were new and there weren't a lot of systems put in place to prevent these kinds of situations, like, Definitely, we saw a lot of shenanigans and a lot of people throwing their weight around. But, you know, overall, I really would say that it actually hasn't necessarily made me less optimistic about crypto in general, which might be surprising to people. um, But it is the truth.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, when you look at Twitter and you read and you listen to podcasts, you know, people do, you know, the people in this space that we interact with on a daily basis do paint this just very beautiful picture of idealistically what crypto could do. And uh, yeah, I think it's important to kind of take a step back and kind of see that, you know, what your book kind of revealed is that, yeah, you know, greed and human nature are are still there. We're just trying to code that greed uh, out of the system if we can.
1: Yeah, keep working on it. Definitely needs improvement. (laughs) Yeah,
0: definitely, definitely does. So let's say, you know, if you were to like hypothetically come out with a book about the beginning of Bitcoin, similar to how you did with the beginning of Ethereum, which is, is basically what this book is about. And let's just say like through your research, you were to discover who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Would you publish that information or do you feel like do you think the lines kind of blur there between being a journalist and maybe protecting someone's identity?
1: No, 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 I would definitely of course publish their name. There's no question. I mean, if I had really really strong evidence and felt confident in it, I would do so.
0: Similar to how you did the the Dow attacker, right? Um <laughs> yeah, let, let's talk about that, you know, like did you just kind of go into this saying, I want to find out who the DAO attacker is? Or did you just kind of, through your research, just kind of accidentally stumble upon some breadcrumbs and you just decided to see where they went? How did all this come about?
1: Oh, no. I mean, of course I was trying to figure it out. I I spent so long on that. Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> I spent so much time on that. And then hilariously, the way it all happened so after I'd spent all this time, so what I did was th- at the time there was an investigation that, you know, named some suspects. And so what I did was I followed that lead out fully and I did all my homework and I researched all the ways, you know, in which, like, what you know, what was really going on? Like, why did these clues come together? mean, et cetera, et cetera. And then I interviewed all... And I wrote up that portion of the book, just kind of presenting all the reasons why they came under suspicion, and then all their, you know, responses to me, essentially. And that was, that was basically what it was. And and so I didn't say anything conclusive. I just basically kind of presented that I did the homework, I finished everything out. And here's what I found. And never said either way what I thought because I frankly just didn't even really know. Like, the, I didn't have anything conclusive, but I just wanted to show like, these are the main suspects. But, you know, I researched it all and like, here's what I thought. And that was what was going to be in the book. And so when you're finishing a book, it goes through what are called three final passes the final passes are just meant to do kind of like all the last minute little changes, you know, it's like copy editing, proofreading and legal. And then the publisher will, you know, kind of do all those things, and they'll send it back to you. And I had hired my own fact checker. And so my fact checker and I would, you know, get the changes back and then be like, Oh, like they made things slightly inaccurate with that change, we have to fix it, like whatever, you know, just making our tweaks. And then you do this in three rounds. And with each round, it's supposed to be fewer and fewer changes. Well, between the first and the second pass, Alex Van de Sand, who is one of the people that was involved in rescuing the money, the remaining money in the Dow after the hack, reached out to me. And he's Brazilian. And he said, Hey, back at the time of the Dow, the Brazilian federal police opened an investigation into the Dow and the Dow hack. And also into me because I'm Brazilian and they, you know, don't know if I'm the hacker or not. And he said, I was thinking about commissioning a report to exonerate myself. And I know you're lo- also looking into this. So would you want to look at that information? I said, yes. So we shared the report and the company Coinfirm firm also gave him a discount and I credited them in the book. And so Alex and I started looking at the information that we had and we mapped the cash-outs onto kind of like a a schedule. And when I say cash-outs, what I mean is that because Ethereum had a hard forked, the attacker had Ethereum Classic at this point. They did not have any ETH. And Ethereum Classic just being, you know, a few months old was not something that they could easily use and actually turn into money. So they were using ShapeShift to try to convert it to Bitcoin, And the reason they wanted to use it, uh, to convert it to Bitcoin was because Bitcoin is the most liquid of all the cryptos. Um, It's the easiest to actually use and turn into money. And so the reason they were using Shapeshift was because Shapeshift was an exchange, but it did not take customer identifying information. And since everybody knew whose coins those were, meaning they were the hackers, you know, he didn't want, this person didn't want their name attached, right? And so they were using Shapeshift to convert to Bitcoin. And we saw that the cash outs mapped onto an Asian morning to nighttime schedule. I was like, oh, hmm. Because I had obtained a customer service email that they had sent to Shapeshift when they were preparing the attack, when they were kind of like getting all their ETH and DAO tokens into place in order to perform this attack on the DAO. And they'd actually sent three customer service emails, but like some of them were super short, like check order, please. (laughs) Actually, I'm going to pull up the text of the slightly longer one. Okay. So this was, this was their last message, which just was a little bit longer. And from this, I definitely knew they were a fluent English speaker. So they wrote, DAO tokens still missing should be this TX please send refund TX hash or DAO token. Thank you. And it's just, it's so hard to explain, but just reading that, DAO tokens still missing. They didn't even, like, so So obviously fluent, like, like just normal fluent English would be, my DAO tokens are still missing. But if you're going to put that in a shorthand, of course you do it the way they did it. DAO tokens still missing. You remove my, you remove R. right? And so it's just like another level of fluency. Like they're so fluent, they can even do shorthand in a perfectly good English way. Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Wow, yeah,
1: so, yeah. Yeah, so I just knew, I was like, this is a fluent English speaker. And then when I saw that the, the cash out times were in on this Asian, you know, morning to time schedule, I was confused. And also the people I'd been investigating, they're all like in, in Europe. And there was one other suspect that Alex and I identified and they were in Russia. And so, and also we checked their social media posts and all their social media posts mapped onto like a a European morning to nighttime schedule. So it was just like, okay, if they're tweeting at the time that this DAO attacker is, it looks like they're sleeping for the cash outs, then, you know, it doesn't look like it's the same person. And so another company I worked with very extensively on a whole number of things was Chainalysis. Chainalysis. So I sent some things to Chainalysis. I was like, oh, you know, this was their main wallet they used on Bitcoin. And like, you know, can you just look into this or that? And oh, by the way, so by the way, meanwhile, I'm supposed to turn in the second pass to this book. And we had already delayed the publication date once because just like all these little things were taking a little bit longer than we thought. And then on top of that, there's like supply chain issues hitting book stuff. And so we were like, you know, things would be just a little bit more comfortable if we could just push it. So we'd already pushed it from a November publication date to January. And when I realized I had this new data that I really wanted wanted to pursue, you know, I thought, okay, so the way I've written it so far where I name these people, but I do not say that they hacked it. I just say I finished out the, uh, you know, the one investigation that had any suspects and I interviewed them all and here's what they said. I mean, that's a perfectly fine way to do journalism. You know, it's like, I didn't accuse them of anything, but at the same time, people know I did my homework and I checked everything out. But, um, you know, of course I wanted to be able to look for what, you know, at this new information that I had. So I did decide to ask the publisher if I could have more time. And they were like, no, like we can't do you, like, what do you, you know, they were like, are you crazy? Um, <laughs> But then, of course, a couple of weeks later, when Chainalysis told me they were able to demix and identify where those coins had been sent, and then I was able to, through another source, get more information on what happened to those coins, and it led me to Toby Honish's identity. Then, of course, when I went to my publisher, then they were like, oh, okay, 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 we'll we'll push it again. <laughs> but anyway, so... I'll just explain that part. So people, so if you, hopefully you saw the Forbes article, but I'll just explain this in case you haven't. So, you know, Chainalysis said, these are the four exchanges. And I got a source to get information from one of those exchanges where the exchange said, okay, the, that, those Bitcoins that were deposited were converted to Grin and then withdrawn to a Grin node called grin.tobi.ai. And when we looked at the IP address hosting that, we saw these Bitcoin lightning nodes and we looked at a Bitcoin lightning node explorer to find out more about those nodes. And we saw one of the nodes was named 10X. And of course, when you Google 10X, you see the that Toby, that Toby is the CEO and co-founder. And by the way, so, so then through the fact checking, you know, I was emailing him a lot. I initially asked for interviews, he didn't respond. And then I sent a bunch of fact checking, which was just, like I sent a Google doc with all the things that were going to be said about him in the book. Then he wrote me back, your statement and your statement and conclusion is factually inaccurate. And then he offered to give me more details if I wanted, but when I immediately wrote him back and said, "Yes, I would like more details and you know, would you actually want to get on the phone?" He did not respond. I gave him the deadline multiple times, you know, like five different times. No response. One other thing I was going to say about that was that the, what I sent him was a Google Doc with the fact-checking. And he, he, I'm pretty sure he's in Singapore. And so it's like roughly exactly half a day opposite of where I am. And I remember that I had the Google Doc open after I sent it. And I saw him open it and he was in the document at the same time. And so I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And it was like the middle of the night here. And I literally could not sleep for another hour and a half after that because my adrenaline was just pumping. But anyway, so what I did see was that he used Toby AI as his alias on multiple, uh, like more, I think I counted 16 of them. It was like Angelist and BetaList and Medium and GitHub and Reddit. And I mean, just on and on and on. And then later on... um, Like a week or two later, we got the email address that was used on that account. And it was the name of the exchange at toby.ai. And then ultimately, later on after that, I was able to also confirm with somebody who used to work with him that he used an email address that ended in at toby.ai. So, you know, I felt the evidence was so strong. This is why, so when, so a couple of other things. So if you, so I know you haven't gotten to this part in the book, so I'm going to it tiny, tiny something for you, but it's not that big.
0: That's okay. That's okay. I can handle it.
1: Okay. You'll see that the Forbes article just has so much more information. And there's like funny reasons for that because it was so late in the process with the book. And because, well, well, mainly that. So the like, and, and also book publishers just, they're not used to breaking this kind of news. And it's like, very difficult because you, you finish a book and then the book doesn't come out for months. Right. So there were just numerous reasons why, um, like there's just kind of a much smaller amount of information about it. But one of the reasons was that they said to me, look, we cannot make huge changes. So what we're going to do is just, we're going to remove the part that you wrote before, and you're going to have to, you're going to have to insert a new section with this. And it has to be roughly the same number of words. Like they were like, you cannot go over X amount of words. And it was funny reasons, like even the fact that if I added pages to the book, then the size of the book jacket would change. And they just couldn't have things like that happening because it was just like too late. So that's why, like when you read the Forbes article, there's just so much more in it. But also I interviewed his co-founder at 10X, Julian Haas, for the article uh, in Forbes, but I did not interview him for the book. And the reason was I had looked and I saw that they had been working together already in June, 2016, when the Dow attack happened. And I just was like, and even though they've had a falling out now, I was like, if they had been accomplices at the time, then it just creates too many wild cards because already I was worried that like, what if Toby publicly comes out and like announces something before my book comes out, you know, like kind of just ruining the news in my book. Or what if like somebody else gets a hold of the book and like, you know, I, I there were just too many things that could go wrong because it was like, I forget, like four months or whatever in between when we finished and when the book was gonna come out. And so ultimately I decided to reach out, you know, before the Forbes article. And um, you know, because so because they'd had this falling out, I had a pretty good feeling like it's it's not gonna be like even if they were accomplices, like there's just something about you know because I saw these videos that Julian Hosp made about his about Toby and I just thought they're they're clearly not friends anymore. But still, you know, I, I wanted to be careful, so I literally spent so the the whole interview was three hours total. Which by the way, that's just like an insanely long interview. But the whole first two hours was me trying to figure out if he had been an accomplice or not, and, but I couldn't let it. I, I couldn't be too obvious about what I really was interested in. So I had to ask like a whole bunch of questions, some of them like, related to what I was actually interested in. And then others that were like, not related to just throw him off the trail if, if, you know, he actually was hiding something in that regard. But anyway, after the two hours, I kind of satisfied myself that like, he probably wasn't an accomplice, because it was just clear he was not a technical person, like it was just very obvious and there were other things like just when he told a story about how he got into crypto like he really wasn't into it until the latter half of 2016 and so anyway there were just numerous things but anyway he was he um he was completely shocked ultimately when i realized like why i i actually had been reaching out he did not believe me about toby at all actually but then as he started to remember more things then you know he was like oh yeah actually i do remember that when i asked him about it I remember he gave me better information than I've been able to find anywhere else online. <laughs> and then he sent me some emails that Toby had sent him around that time and different things. So anyway, yeah, the whole thing. I, it, but again, you know, it took me a long time to get comfortable because even though I only interviewed him before, a few days before the Forbes article came out, I also thought, oh my gosh, if this goes bad, he could like announce something before... My article comes out and before my book comes out. And he has a big following. And anyway, so I just I was very cautious. But yeah, in the end, everything worked out really well. And I feel like the evidence is so strong. You know, people haven't really pressed back in any way. Um, so I, I feel really good about it.
0: Yeah, that's kind of been what I noticed about that, you know, that news break is that I, I haven't seen anybody in the crypto space or anywhere at all really just push back and say no, you're wrong. Here's why. With the exception of the alleged DAO attacker who just told you, <laughs> no, that's wrong. And, so, and like, what is what is the protocol? Like, like you send, you know, this fact check document to somebody and they say, no, your conclusions are wrong. Are, are you just giving them opportunity to retort with other contradicting facts or uh, what's the protocol there?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, just, just getting that part, his denial was really important, you know, to have him, let him say, like, like, let him have a say. I mean, you'll notice in my book, so I'm, I'm sure you're very well aware, there's many negative things that people said about other people. And you'll always see, like, I have a response, at least if somebody gave me one, I'll have a response or I'll say like, oh, they didn't talk to me or, you know, whatever it might be. And so, you know, that's what we wanted. It's like, you have to always give somebody an opportunity. You should never blindside somebody. Like I I would have never published this without reaching out to him first. Like, you know, I mean, what if, what if he had some like really good explanation for why, you know, the money was, was sent to his grid node or whatever, you know, he didn't, but, uh, you know, I should definitely give him this opportunity to give that denial, which I have published everywhere. And also, yeah, to see everything, like like, what if there was like just anything else that he wanted to dispute or make a comment on? yeah, so, and that's why so we we had to send him the fact checking for the Forbes article again because there was a lot more in that article, um including the comments from his former co-founder, and then there was no response that time, but you know we, we it's just it's just like part of the protocol, like you always have to give. A person the opportunity to respond and you have to do your best like you know just sending one request for response is not it's i mean it's it's better than nothing obviously but you know i i, I was using like multiple email addresses i was i, I mean I, I was just trying so many ways i went into right now he has this defi thing called memo capital and i went into the Mimo discord and i messaged every single app, or maybe not every single but like multiple of the admins and I was like, hey, can you put me in touch with him? And then once they started responding, I like was hounding them like, oh, like, you know, when do you think I'll be able to talk to him? Or like, um, can you get me his email address? Or, you know, I was just kind of like, yeah, hounding them for for a way to to get in touch with him. So yeah, I mean, you just want to make your best effort. And like I said, you don't want to blindside people and you want to give them every opportunity to respond.
0: Yeah. So keep in mind, everyone, if Laura Shin comes into the index co-op discord saying, where's Crypto Texan? I really need to talk to him. I have left the country at that point.
1: (laughs) Well, leaving the country won't help you very much because, you know, there's this thing called the internet, but anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So uh, like what other reactions have you received? Or I guess, what are some of the more shocking reactions to you that you've received? Thus far, from the personalities that you've portrayed in this book, or of some of the details that you've uncovered, because like I know like this industry, like people can be pretty thin-skinned sometimes, but I'm just wondering like what are what are some of the more shocking reactions you've received?
1: Well, most of them probably happened during the fact checking phase last summer. So you know, at that time, definitely some of the people who had more negative things said about them. They were not happy with me. They weirdly thought that it was me saying these things, and I'm like, no, 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 I got these from other people. Somebody at uh, well, they're they're not at Consensus anymore, but they they must have talked to somebody who is, and they forwarded a message saying that in the Consensus Town Hall, Joe told people that I have a gripe with him which I was like, whoa, whoa." like, did you read the book? Because it's all your like employees and former employees who are saying these things, not me. Some of the people during the fact-checking phase got very testy with me. One one of them in particular, and I know this kind of, well, so two people did this. And I know this is going to sound very weird, but I just felt like this is what they're doing. At the point when it got to a phone conversation, a a, a conversation where, you know, they were, were unhappy and really upset with what they were finding out, they, we were doing, you know, like a video call and both of these people were walking around so that the video was like very discombobulating for me to look at. And for some reason, it's so hard to explain. I know this might sound silly, but I just thought like, oh, that's, they're trying to do that to like intimidate me and just sort of throw me off. Um, I know that sounds weird, but I know it just, it's just the sense that I got. Anyway, yeah, it was, you know, it's it's hard. I I I get it. You know, you, it's not it's not nice to find out like nasty things that other people said about you. One thing I will say is one of them was like, oh, you're just a Jerry Springer journalist, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, and, and they, and they, they kind of acted like it, like this is me and and this is the kind of journalist I am. But there are multiple people in the book where nobody said anything negative about them. So beyond Vitalik, I just remembered also like Jeff, or Christoph, or like Griff. I mean, there's there's actually multiple people where nobody, you know, said like, "Oh, I had a bad experience with that person." So, oh, by the way, I I'm just really so I'm going to have to go um very very shortly. But anyway, but so you know, I, I really I was a little bit like. You know, I don't think it's that I'm a Jerry Springer journalist. I think it's that you maybe lived a somewhat Jerry Springer-ish life. And this is what people are saying about you. But are there are plenty of people in the book where I actually didn't have to run a single negative thing that was said about them by them because nobody had anything negative to say anything. Any, you know, to say about them. So,
0: right. And I think Hudson Jameson might be one of those people as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, There's multiple. There's multiple.
0: Well, and he's a Texas guy. So I got to do a shout out there to Hudson. (laughs) (laughs) All good remarks in the book. Uh, But yeah, yeah. Like you said, we are running up on time. So Laura, I just, you know, thanks for being on the show. I think, I think the book is just an incredible asset to the crypto community as a whole. And obviously very well done. I highly recommend anyone who has not purchased the book purchase it and read it because it'll just, it's a great foundation to where we are today. And uh, yeah, Laura, where can people go to find out more about you, the book and your podcast?
1: So you can follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. You can also check out laurashin.com, go to unchainedpodcast.com. You can also follow the Unchained underscore pod Twitter account. And I have a couple different newsletters. There's one that comes out Monday through Friday, and that is on the UnchainedPodcast.com website. And I have another newsletter via bulletin, and that comes out just a few times a month. Um, but I've started a premium offering on it, and I release videos that I do kind of in preparation for Unchained ahead of time, essentially. So you'll you'll get to learn about like a lot more up and coming projects if you join that. Because I have long done these kinds of interviews um, where I'm like vetting things to go on the show, but I've just ever ne- never actually released them until now. So that's it, the com email address.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. Thanks for coming on the show. Everyone who's listening live, thank you for listening live. This is being recorded and we will get this podcast out in about a week. Have a great weekend, everyone. And Laura, thanks again for being on the show. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun.
0: Absolutely. Bye, everyone. Bye.